0: Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give
1: our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. So today on our podcast, we have a special bonus episode. We are welcoming two guests, Sarah and Chelsea, from Novel Pairings. Welcome,
2: hi, Hello, thank you so much for having us. yeah, we're super excited. It's been a while since we've gotten to talk with other podcasters, and we're I so know. It's, it's so so,
3: nice. so fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's great to like reach out. Neha and I just constantly talk to each other and <laughs> there's not much outside that bubble, so it's nice yep, to same. have the extra opinions.
0: <laughs> it's like a lot of times I try and get my husband to read the books that we're talking about on the podcast just so I have someone else to talk to. <laughs> about it. it doesn't work most of the time. But yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the novel pairings?
3: Oh my goodness. Sarah, it's been a while since we've given a spiel. (laughs) I know. Do you want to do it?
0: (laughs) Um, sure. I'll
3: start, and then you can add anything that needs to be added. We have been podcasting at Novel Pairings for three years. Is it going to be three and a half? In March, it'll be four. Oh my goodness! I think so. (laughs) We've been podcasting together as Novel Pairings for three and a half years, and um, Sarah and I were both high school English teachers and met through Instagram and often had like various comments on what we were teaching and how we were teaching um, in our DMs. And then in 2019, moving into 2020, we started talking about what it would look like to host a classic literature podcast. And then Sarah had the brilliant idea of pairing classic literature with contemporary literature. And since then, Novel Pairings has evolved into something very nerdy, and we're having a lot of fun with it.
2: Yeah, it's funny, and maybe you all have had a similar experience, too, just kind of what you think people will be interested in, and then what ends up kind of taking hold. So we launched our podcast thinking, you know, we're not trying to convince anyone to read the classics. In fact, we really want to show people like you can get similar things from reading other books, but we'll give you some kind of some help if you do want to approach the classics or give you enough information so you don't have to read that book. And while we still are not here to convince anyone that they have to read the classics, our listenership really has exploded around people who want to read the classics with us. And so that's been really fun, too, to form a community of readers who may or may not love classics, but are just interested
1: in exploring them. Yeah, that's super cool. I think it's one of the really nice parts about social media and the internet is bringing people together in this way. I am a classics nerd. Um, I've listened <laughs> to a lot of your episodes and I love how you make it so accessible. I, I think I read a lot of classics before my brain was ready for it. <laughs> so So I just <laughs> understood the story because I read it when I was like, 12 or 13. Um, And so going back to it, even if I don't have the time to read 600 pages of the story, but just hearing others talk about it and what people enjoyed, what they learned from it is a really nice way to go back to those books.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting also just listening to your podcast. I'm a newer follower. Shruti got me on to listening to you guys. So Shadee and I didn't go to high school in the United States. We both went to high school in India. So it's just really interesting to hear the perspective of what high school students in this country learn about in terms of literature compared to what we learned about in literature.
2: Well, I feel like we should have you guys on for an episode to talk (laughs) all about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. For 11th and 12th grade, you did IB, but I did the state the local state curriculum for those two years instead. So even between Trithia and I, we have like differences in what we learned about in the English language.
1: Yeah. So like Jane Eyre, I know we did in high school, but a lot of the classics that people read here, like the great Gatsby, I didn't read through school, Mm -hmm. but I did read a couple books by Indian authors. So it's just been very interesting to see what the traditions are and what people grow up with.
2: Fascinating. And then it shapes kind of how you see books and reading Mm -hmm. for so long. So yeah, the, the curriculum that English teachers choose or often are, they're not given the choice here. <laughs> it has
1: long lasting impacts. Definitely. So, um, since you are both teachers and you run a book podcast, what was it that first sparked your love for reading?
3: Mm. I love this question. (laughs) Maybe especially because um, Sarah and I both have little ones now who are very interested in books. I mean, there are a few books that sparked my love of reading, but just going to the library all the time um, and being really lucky to live close to a great local library—I think that that's what really sparked my love of reading. And then I just always had really good English teachers. I mean, from the time that I was little through high school, and I think seeing the way that those teachers interacted with students and just really enjoying those classes the most is a lot of what made me want to be an English teacher. So yeah, the library and school. <laughs> I feel really, really lucky to be able to say that.
2: For me, I I'm an only child and I moved around a lot growing up. So I, I think books were like always constant companion and rereading books that I loved was always so, so comforting. So I, you know, especially as I was like new to a place and just making friends like it was returning to books was really important to me. I think books like these are very different books, but Ella Enchanted and The Giver are two. Those that are some come of my favorite
0: books growing up. Like, oh, did I we all just that. have the same childhood? I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We all read Ella Enchanted.
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so good. And I, you know, I, I, I love thinking about the books that I read growing up and how they influence what I like now. And I still love a fairy tale <laughs> retelling and just books that kind of, put a twist on stories that I'd heard before and kind of changed my perspective. I think that's what I really fell in love with, with reading. I did not want to be an English teacher. I kind of like, I don't know, fell into it in part because I I couldn't really think of anything else I wanted to do other than talk about books and didn't know any other way to do it. Uh, but I did really, really love teaching, um, although now I I like getting to talk about books and not grade papers. So (laughs) that sounds
1: like an upgrade. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Um, Sarah, I know you already mentioned The Giver and Ella Enchanted, but Chelsea, were there any books that you remember growing up that you loved?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was totally an Ella Enchanted girl as well. I read a lot of Nancy Drew books. I really liked the Wizard of Oz series which one the boxcar children and like anything that was a series I was very into like the the books that I could just read one after the other after the other and take a whole stack home from the library I was really into all of those and now I'm like I rarely read series at all
0: (laughs) it's too much of a commitment these days exactly
3: Yep, I don't have the kind of time I did as when I was in fourth grade
1: (laughs) I loved yes. those chapter books, though, the Boxcar Children, and then um, – I don't know if this was maybe bigger in India than it is here, but Enid Blyton and all of the boarding school books.
2: I don't no? know those,
1: but I think I would have loved boarding school oh, books. Oh, they were <laughs> so fun. There was uh, St. Clair's and Mallory Towers, and then there was also like a little – kind of like the Boxcar Children, the five finder outers, that they would like go around with their dog and solve mysteries, and I – I love them so much that I would still pick up one of the boarding school books now as a comfort read. Yeah. So both of you are English teachers, which is nice for us. We don't have any formal training in English or literature. We just love it. But are there any misconceptions about being an English teacher or teacher in general that you would like to put to rest? I love this question. <laughs> my, my first thought was that
2: we don't love all of the books that we teach. <laughs> Sometimes we just have to teach them Mm -hmm. and that we don't just read classics. Like, I think I definitely thought about my English teachers, that they had no idea that there were other books that existed beyond these classics. And most English teachers do have an idea that there are other books in the world.
3: (laughs) This might not be all English teachers, because I know some who maybe still fall into the trope of being really strict about grammar. But at least for me and a lot of the English teachers that I know, I do not care about grammar as much as you would think I do. <laughs> um so I think that's a misconception that like all English teachers are like waiting to catch you in a grammar <laughs> error or like everything they read they're looking for typos and mistakes and like correcting and I just that is not what I care about. <laughs> but also like when I tell people Oh, I taught English. I taught high school English. They're always like, "What books did you like to teach?" And I'm like, "I do love books, but I actually loved teaching writing even more." So, I don't know. You know, I guess I hesitate to speak for all English teachers, but those are some misconceptions that I I bust quite often.
2: Yeah, I was actually I was going to ask you all because in the US, English teachers teach both like reading and the classic texts and analytical reading and all of that and composition. And you do both in the same class. And it's – Chelsea and I talk about this all the time. It's just – it's too much <laughs> for, you know, one subject and one teacher. Were reading and writing ta- combined into one course in your high school experience or were
1: they split? Um So I can go first because we took – We did seventh and eighth grade together and then we split into different curricula. I remember seventh and eighth grade, they were together. I had really cool English teachers throughout high school. The two things I remember are we did a passage from Pride and Prejudice and then we talked about it like a close reading. And then for what felt like half the year, we wrote a book. That was our assignment to write a book. So I had this like 150, 200 page book by the end. I wrote a murder mystery and that was really fun. Yeah, that was a fun assignment. And then Afterwards, it was a little bit more formal because I went into the British and then the IB curricula, and that was more focused on literature and literary analysis. I don't think the writing was emphasized as much. But we did have a separate extended essay that was outside of our classes, so that kind of took care of like a big writing piece.
0: Yeah, and for, for me, it was all together throughout. I don't think English in my local syllabus was... A subject that anyone really took that seriously unfortunately we had to take multiple languages so it would be I took French and we kind of treated both of them the same which I think is odd because when you're learning a second language you're kind of going back to the basics and so we kind of did that in English as well and a lot I remember a lot of 11th and 12th grade was just reading passages about historical events and us just analyzing it together as a class but yeah that's how it was for me. So interesting.
1: Yeah, super different. Thanks for sharing. Of course. So um, kind of going off of what we've been talking about with English class and kind of lifelong learners, on your podcast, you've used the term public scholarship. Could you briefly explain what that is and how can we all engage in it?
2: So I think of public scholarship as taking the things that typically happen in like a university setting where professors are researching and teaching and doing that in the public and for the public, either in addition to their, maybe they are professors at an institution, but they're also sharing their work with the public. Or instead of that, maybe they've, you know, they have a PhD and no one hired them because it's really hard to find a job in academia. And then they direct their interests and research to the public sphere. So any, you know, I think anytime we see somebody who is an academic writing like an op ed or something that that's tech, you know, public, public scholarship. But I think we've seen kind of this like, boom in public scholarship with podcasting and newsletters, especially where people have more control over their, their work and can get it like directly to interested parties. So I think about like, I I don't know if you all listen to either of these podcasts, but uh, Witch Please, which is two feminist and gender studies professors who Mm -hmm. analyze – it started with the Harry Potter books, but I think they've expanded from there – or Dolls of Our Lives, formerly the American Girls podcast, where it's two graduate students in history talking about the American Girl dolls. So those kinds of things Mm -hmm. where it's like they're using their expertise – to talk about pop culture, but really are are educating along the way. And, and those are two of my favorite uh, places to find public scholarship. That's really fun, but I feel like I learn something with every episode. Mm-hmm. Those sound really fun.
3: A lot of colleges and universities will have sort of like um, – Open enrollment courses for particularly for retired senior citizens um, who want to just like continue education. And I think of what we do and what a lot of people do in the sort of public scholarship realm as doing that, except it's not a formal class that you sign up for. And if, yeah, if you are nerdy and you love to learn, there's just so much available. Sarah and I have found a lot on Substack, podcasts are great. I'm trying to think of some other sources that we've seen. Sarah and I within our Patreon community especially we talk a lot about JSTOR, which is just a place where you can sign up for a free account and read a bunch of academic articles. There's just so much available, but it's it's nice to kind of have a guide. Like if you're reading short stories and you look at George Saunders and his Substack instead of just being like I'm going to analyze this short story and like teach myself, having this professor walk you through it is just incredible. So,
1: yeah, I like how accessible it is. I also love kind of what you referred to, Sarah, where um, a lot of these podcasts and discussions and topics kind of revolve around pop culture and things that like growing up, I feel like I was told it's not serious and a waste of time. Um, But being able to look at it with this lens of what does it say about us, about this moment, about our community is super interesting.
2: Yeah, I think so too. And I I would love to see more of that happen in, in schools too, because those analysis tools are what we're really trying to teach. And it's a lot easier to use those tools when you're talking about something you know about and care about rather than, you know, the book that your English teacher assigned that you don't understand anyways. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so I think it's really, really cool. And, and I, I know that there are a lot of really great educators who are bringing some of these resources into the classroom as examples of great critical analysis. Mm
3: -hmm. Do either of you follow or read Anne Helen Peterson's work, Culture Study? No. No. Okay. If you are into pop culture analysis and cultural analysis in general, she is one to check out, and she's just now starting a podcast Um, It's going to be called Culture Study, but she will talk to experts and analyze everything from – she's written a couple of pieces on Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey because she used to (laughs) write for, like, celebrity magazines, but she takes the approach of critical analysis to it. Just, like, pieces of pop culture and daily life that you might not think to dig deeper into.
2: Yeah, she looks for anything that she – describes, which is definitely like an English teacher term, as a rich text. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, Taylor and Travis's relationship as a rich text or like all of the sweaters Instagram is trying to sell you as
0: (laughs) as a rich text, you know,
1: (laughs) it's really good stuff. Oh, that sounds so fascinating.
0: Speaking of tools, and I know you guys just mentioned a bunch of useful resources, but if there's one tool, exercise, or resource that you could recommend for those who want to engage specifically in literature, what would it be? So I talk about this book
2: all the time, and I love it so much. um, Craft in the Real World by Matthew Celices. He is a writing instructor, and this book really is for writers and writing teachers, but you can get a lot out of it as a reader. I'd say it's been more influential for me as a reader than as a teacher. But he breaks down the idea of craft, that good writing, he says, is just a set of cultural expectations and genre expectations. And we're taught a certain certain way, depending on right where we grow up and what our curriculum looks like, that a certain style is impressive and well done craft. But he breaks all of that that down. And it's so helpful for me as like a public reader and reviewer to think about, like, oh, why didn't I get this part of the book? Like, maybe it's not about what the author did maybe it's about my own cultural assumptions and what i've been taught is good craft. I reread it especially a couple of the chapters frequently when i start feeling like my reading brain is is broken because he just gives some really good tips. And then my the other book i love is a swim in the pond in the rain by by George Saunders who also has the Substack. But this is it's a series of 8 or 9 short stories. And he he includes the short story and then his analysis of it, but especially the first couple, he goes like almost paragraph by paragraph, modeling how he thinks while he's reading a short story. So it helps prime you for how to ask
1: those kinds of questions in your own reading. Uh, It's really great. That one's been on my to read list for so long. And it's just sitting on my bookshelf waiting for me.
2: It's really good. And I I think that honestly, you could get a ton out of just reading like the first story, and essay and then go back to it if and when you you feel like it. I second those. And also, Sarah said about the Saunders book that it
3: gives you questions to ask as you are reading. And If I could recommend just like one exercise to do to read more deeply, it's just asking yourself questions as you read or when you're finished reading something, because often you can just read a book and you're like, I'm done. I'm moving forward. And maybe you'll remember like how the book made you feel or some characters, which is great. But if you want to dig deeper into that reading experience, asking yourself some questions like what do I think the author was trying to say with this book? Or um, do I think the author did a good job of communicating this theme? Or was the structure a good match for the content? Just asking yourself some of those questions to dig deeper can be super helpful. And sometimes those questions will lead you to a Google search, and that'll lead you to another piece of public scholarship. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. That's something we do on our podcast too. At the end of all of our episodes, we ask the question, will this book stand the test of time? And I think it helps give that reading experience a little bit more meaning when we ask ourselves that question. So
2: I like that. Oh, that's such a great culminating question. I love that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, That's a really good one.
1: I mean, it's a question that's led to a lot of other questions because then we find ourselves thinking, Like, not every book has to stand the test of time. Sometimes books speak to certain individuals or a certain moment in history. And so it's just been an interesting way to think about the books we're reading. So I'm going to play devil's advocate and ask for the naysayers, since we've been talking about analyzing and and having this critical lens, why should we read analytically? And are there certain books that should just be taken at face value?
2: Good
3: question.
1: I, okay. Well, I want
2: to start just by saying I think that most people are reading analytically, even if you're not trying to read <laughs> analytically. I, I think that like anytime you have the thought, like the female characters in this book just aren't realistic at all, or like wondering if an author got a time period right or thinking that a Thriller is like too much like every other thriller you've read. Like all of those are analysis. Like you're digging into the text, you're applying some questions and judgments on onto it. So I think that that most readers do it now. Whether or not every reader needs to consciously like learn about literary theory and try to like dive deeper into into a text. No, I, I don't I don't think every reader needs to do that. It, I think it took me a while as an English teacher to kind of shake that idea that I want my students to be able to do that about something, <laughs> but I, it doesn't have to be the books that they're reading. Like, I, I hope that when they consume uh, the news or when they go to a movie sometimes or when they're engaging in... Political conversations that they're able to ask those analysis questions, but if they just want to read their books just for fun, that's fine with me. <laughs> I don't know. What do you What do you think, Chelsea?
3: I agree, and also, I guess the only thing I would add to that is um, to answer the question: Should we enjoy certain books at face value and just read them for the story? There are probably books that lend themselves to be read like that and that might be the better reading experience for some readers but I don't think there's any book that I could say this should be just read Mm -hmm. at face value I think every book every movie every piece of art anything that someone produces and puts into the world for other people to view is open to criticism and analysis and you know even the the most popular page turning blockbuster books that people are reading for the story. And I'm definitely just thinking of fourth wing right now. (laughs) Um, There is really important critique to be had in that book, whether that has to do with how the author wrote about certain characters identities, or whether that has to do with the publishing industry itself—are they churning out these books too fast? Um, I think there's there are always questions that you can ask. But I'm like Sarah, where I love to have that kind of reading experience and make. Those I wouldn't have and- fun without doing that, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, like Sarah said, you don't have to like be an English teacher to read like that. Anyone can. Yeah does that does that all answer the question well enough? Did we did we soothe the naysayers?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't have much of an argument because I also love <laughs> <laughs> digging deeper and talking about things. And I feel like for others who don't have a podcast, I I would always encourage like a book buddy or a or book club because I feel like ne- Neha and I have both reflected that with this experience, we enjoy the book so much more and we have so much more of a rich experience with books that we might've just read and, and put aside. Um And even in one case, there was a book that we ended up not liking it as much after reading it, but I think it's because talking about it, um, and I'm referring to the murmur of bees, which we read at the beginning of our season, because while we were talking about it and kind of digging deeper, we found a lot of assumptions within the book that we, we thought were a little problematic and talking about those helped us be aware of it in a different country. Like we're not aware of those kinds of, um, assumptions and, and discrimination in another country, but overall it's been, it's been great.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting what you brought up about how what publishing companies are putting out in the world because we recently had this discussion too where last season we did around the world in eight eight t books and it was us picking a book from each country and it just happened to be that most of the books that we talked about were encompassing trauma in some sense or the other and it got us into reading this article by the New York Times but it was just talking about how trauma was having its moment in media right now. And so those are the books that are being presented in bookstores because that's what's trending right now. So it's just interesting to see like what our decisions we're making on the books that we're reading based off what's being shown to us as well.
2: So interesting. I mean, this is why I think that, like Chelsea was saying, every book is up for analysis because it's not only our books art, but they're also... Entertainment, and they're also consumer goods, and they have huge marketing pushes behind certain ones. So there are so many angles through which to enter that analysis, and I I think that once the book is out there, it's it's for readers to interpret, and so. I just want to give listeners too permission. Like, it doesn't matter. There's not a right answer. Even if you had the opportunity to ask the author, "Did you mean this when you wrote that?" and they said, "Oh, absolutely not," you can still interpret it and analyze it that that way. That is, it, it's yours now. Like, a the meaning of a text is made by the reader and the author meeting on on the page.
3: In the same vein, it can be really tricky. I think to go back and critically analyze a book that you really 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 love so like if we were all to discuss ella enchanted on the podcast (laughs) and we love this book right like it is on a pedestal in our hearts because it's one of the books we loved as kids um there might be some things in there that we have, not necessarily like have problems with, but to go and critically analyze a book like that, that you're really sentimental about can be kind of tricky too. But often I feel I end up, even if I have some criticisms of a book like that, I end up loving the reading experience of like having that richer, deeper connection to the book because I chose to look deeper into it and, be critical and engage with it in a different way everybody's got a book like that where they're like i don't know if i even want to read it again because i don't i just want it to like stay in its glass case
1: forever mm-hmm. yeah.
0: yeah this season we're doing uh, the humans by matt haig and it's probably one of my favorite books of all time and I am so scared for Shruti to read it. Like I'm, I'm like, I almost don't want to do this book because I'm just going to get, keep my feelings about it forever and never talk about them so it's not ruined for me. But we are going to talk about it, so we'll see how it goes. I
2: think Chelsea and I can relate. We've both felt similarly about books we've covered on the podcast and i hope that your podcast and your relationship survives your discussion <laughs> I'm
1: sure it will. so far it has but it almost broke when we ranked our favorite harry potters yeah oh.
0: we had a, our biggest debate probably on that topic yeah <laughs> i'm gonna have to go
1: back
2: and listen to that one yeah, yeah. Um, we're still here
1: talking to each other yeah but um you both did a season on children's literature. Did that happen when you went back and read some of those books, where you discovered things you may not have noticed or things you didn't necessarily like? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I was say that feels like so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't
2: that long ago. That's, that question is totally fair game. The one I remember, yeah. and I, I what I can't remember is details, but I do remember. I was so excited to reread A Wrinkle in Time. Like, mm-hmm. I have such fond memories of that book and fond memories of the characters, Meg and Charles Wallace in particular. And then I read it and I was like, I cannot stand these people. <laughs> like, I, I do not want to read about them. I find them so annoying. And there there were still things that I really liked about the book and it wasn't like – so problematic. I, I'm I'm still eager to read it with my daughter one day. And But what I had found charming before was grading as an adult reader.
3: I know that after we did that season, um, there was a podcast that came out and it's a nice like just one season. I love podcasts like that where it's like you just learn about one thing for one season and it's done. It was about Laura Ingalls Wilder at the Little House on the Prairie books. The podcast is called Wilder. And so we did not read those books or one of those for our season, but those were my childhood favorite. And um, I certainly won't think about the books in the same way, but I'm glad that I, I
1: listened to it and engaged with that public scholarship. So I guess a lot of what we've been talking about is how we learn about reading texts closely and analytically. And you mentioned this a little bit before, Sarah, with one of the books that you recommended for looking at things in different ways and different perspectives. And even though we didn't go to high school in this country, we definitely have been brought up in the Western tradition. And that's influenced a lot of how we consume culture and books and movies. And I'm just wondering, what are some ways that you think that this might be helpful and it might also be uh, limiting?
2: This is this is such a good question. I I mean I think that there are many things to talk about with this, but the t- the two things that I guess that kind of first come to mind are both like what we read in the classroom and then how we approach those texts. And I think there has already been a lot said about what we read and how white and and male. Um, a lot of the Western canon is and while I was visiting family for Thanksgiving we were, started talking about there had been a an article recently about some teachers in I think I think Washington actually who didn't want to teach to kill a mockingbird anymore and they weren't trying to like ban the book or anything they just didn't think that every student needed to read it and, you know, somebody at the table was like, oh, but that's such a great book for whatever reason. And then we started talking about just all of these books that are frequently taught. And everybody at the table had their book that was like, but you can't take that out of the curriculum. And I was like, this is what happens in an English department is everybody has their pet book that they're like, you can't take this one out. And therefore, no change happens. And it's it's really – frustrating on the inside, but probably more frustrating on the outside <laughs> Um, to just be like, why can we all acknowledge that this curriculum, these curricula across the country really need to change? And it's just not happening. And so I don't know I, I, how those curricula changes will happen. And they are certainly happening in many, many places, which is why, of course, you see the counter swing of book banning over like, Banning diverse books so that of course is one hugely limiting factor of the western english classroom
3: yeah i wish that i had a better understanding of other cultural school and literary practices for teaching literature because i just don't um so I, I wish that I had more points of comparison to really like articulate more of the, the benefits and drawbacks of the Western tradition. But something that always comes to mind for me is just the very black and white thinking that is often embedded throughout um, Western education and not just in the English classroom. I think We see that in the way that history um, and social studies are taught. There's always got to be a very clear hero in a story. There's not as much room for nuance, I think. And there's sort of this emphasis on like getting to the right answer or like the core truth of, of a story when there might be multiple. That's not to say that every single teacher in every single classroom teaches that way and that. Teachers who are in the Western system sometimes don't, you know, they might bring in some other cultural practices, particularly if if they have experienced those. But I think in general, just that sort of like very black and white thinking and not necessarily allowing quite as much nuances
0: is what I often struggled with as a student. Yeah. And I'm an architect and I design schools, actually, So, Sarah, I totally get what you're saying. I attend a lot of district meetings with the board of, like, the council and the board of that district that's being built. And everybody has these ideas. But in the end, most of the time, it's just a copy-paste of another school that's in that district. And as much as we're trying to fight, like, we want something better, we want something cooler, it almost rarely happens. So I totally get that standpoint.
2: Yeah, there are so many stakeholders involved in any Mm -hmm. school.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, like
2: the administrators and the school board and the parents and the students and the teachers and the architects, like there's so many people, and so I think sometimes like we just like have to play to the lowest common denominator, and when there could be more creative and innovative solutions
1: and Chelsea, what you said about like you know the other traditions that we don't learn as much about, it's interesting because even trying to go outside of. The United States, like Neha and I both went to school in India, but because of the history of colonialism and empire, the Indian schooling system is the British schooling system. And so even though some of the history and the literature has been adapted, we are still very much within that tradition. And I mean, unfortunately, my grasp on Indian languages is not good enough to read literature and poetry in a lot of the regional languages, because there's definitely rich history throughout the world in non-English languages. And I just wish I wish somebody was doing this public scholarship with translating those works and making them accessible to people who don't know
0: those languages. Yeah, in the last season we did a couple episodes talking about the Mahabharat, which is like one of the most famous epic poems in from Indian history. And we discovered that there isn't actually a ton of retellings or just information out there or even for... basic
1: translations.
0: There's maybe one or two in existence and yeah. they're kind of old. For one of the oldest and most popular not like poems ever to exist in the world. We were like there should be more stuff out there for this. That's fascinating. Yeah,
2: yeah, I completely agree. And Chelsea and I have been consciously trying to bring more translated works. Chelsea, you you put this in our outline elsewhere, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but Penguin Classics has been um, re-releasing a lot of kind of lost classics, whether they're translated or from – historically marginalized communities in the U.S. and reissuing them with pretty covers and and good introductions to acc- acclimate yourself into the book. And so that's really, really helpful.
3: Yeah, honestly, if you just follow them on Instagram, that's where Sarah and I get like 90% of, oh, they just published this one. That might be fun for the podcast. (laughs) I will follow them for sure.
0: Going off of that, what is one book that isn't a traditional classic that you think deserves the label? And on the other hand, conversely, what is a frequently cited classic that you think doesn't deserve that title? That's such a hard question. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't know how
1: I would even answer. The question. I know after we just talked about how each book means something to everyone.
3: <laughs> well, I was just thinking, Sarah, we have been fairly loose, I think, with what kind of books we welcome onto the podcast as classics. So, yes. like, there are definitely some lesser-known books that were published, you know, many years ago, and we frame them as a classic, but I don't know if everyone would think of them as a classic. A classic is just a book that was published a long enough time ago that if we're picking it up now, we can say, as your question states, it is standing the test of time in some way. And so I think we've been kind of like free with how we dispense that. So most recently, we read Blind Owl by um, Sada Kedayat. But that's one that Penguin recently reissued in a new translation. And I definitely like wouldn't have thought of that off the top of my head as a classic. But since we read it and discussed it on the podcast and learned some of the history behind it, it is now in my catalog of classics. Is there a book that you can think of, Sarah, that's like
2: that? I guess the ones that come to mind for me in that vein are are more like the modern classics, mm-hmm. like we read the remains of the day. But I think that that one is, you know, that's not undiscovered. Like he, he won the Nobel. <laughs> we discussed passing by Nella Larson very early in the podcast. And that was a book that like when I was in high school, I had never, never heard of that book. I think now it is. Be- I, and I think in part because of Penguin and their beautiful editions, and because of Britt Bennett and the vanishing half and kind of talking about the inspiration of passing like, and the movie now and the movie. Yeah. It's like was having a moment. And I think because of the moment now it's like firmly in the, the canon, but that's a book I, I think absolutely has deserved that label. I, I also think it's, it's tough even to go the other direction because there are lots of like canonical books that I don't like. But I know that they're influential. And maybe they're influential because they've just been preserved in the canon by, like, the same stuffy readers for so long. But nonetheless, they have had influence. And I can't deny <laughs> deny them that. But I said if I had to choose one, it would be 1984. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I think because there are so many great works of dystopian fiction, like they're they're all asking similar questions, which is not to say that they're all the same. But like if I were in a classroom, like 1984, it would be at the bottom of my list of dystopian fiction to bring in if I was going to bring in anything dystopian.
3: Yeah, that one hasn't really aged the best, has it? Not in terms of like, oh, problematic content, not that there isn't any of that, but more just like dystopian fiction. And then you get to a certain year. <laughs> yeah and sometimes they either nailed it or sometimes you're like this just isn't relevant anymore but by that same token sarah where you're talking about well like i can get at all of these themes through a different book that's how i feel about
2: to kill a mockingbird yeah agreed i'm not gonna
3: say that it doesn't deserve the title of a classic because there is still a lot to talk about but i would love to see that one off of many school lists so it would have been interesting to be at that Thanksgiving conversation. <laughs> I have a lot to say about To Kill think, a
2: Mockingbird. I think I, I did you proud. I'm sure you
3: did, Sarah. <laughs> we have not read that one for the podcast yet, but I, I think
1: it's it's coming. It's inevitable. I loved To Kill a Mockingbird, but I have not read it in years and years. Like With everything that you've said and what I've heard, I, it is one of those things that I wonder – you only read a certain number of books when you're young. And is this just the one that I was presented? And I loved it because there was a young character and, it, you know, there was kind of this hero figure and it fits into all of these, not tropes, but things that young readers can really easily latch onto. So. Well, and, and like it's. It's okay to love the book. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that your point too about like, there are only so many books we read when we're young. This is the other thing Chelsea and I talk about all the time. It's like, you get to teach like six to eight, that'd be stretching it, novels a year as an English teacher. And so it's not about saying like, well, this book just is trash and doesn't deserve to be taught at all. Although there might be books that we feel that way about, but it's like, (laughs) is this one of the six books that I want to make sure this group of kids reads? And that's a, I think people don't really think about that aspect of creating a curriculum that it's, it's very
1: limited. Yeah. That must be really tough. I can't even pick like six of my favorites, much less what I would teach to
0: the next generation. Because you just talked a lot about dystopian fiction, it's a great segue because this season, our theme is speculative fiction. So the name of the season is going to be Other Worlds. And when we were researching, we found that speculative fiction is often not taken as seriously as other books. So we wanted to know your thoughts, why you think that is and should it be?
2: I I think that's so interesting. I think in general, like genre fiction, which is just kind of a, a... big label. You can kind of divide fiction into literary and genre <laughs> or literary contemporary and genre fiction. And so I think anything that's genre fiction where it's kind of following a certain set of of tropes or formulas can be considered less than. And I think there's definitely like a subset of of readers who equate literary with realism, but I also think that, I mean, there are some great classic works of speculative fiction like Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll and and Mr. Hyde that have had, that have had huge influence on culture and the literary landscape. So I definitely think that speculative fiction should be taken very seriously. And I think maybe it is slightly more now, but but it's a certain type of speculative fiction, like I'm thinking of, like the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, or uh, Sing Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward, where there are very real stories with an element of something speculative or magical or or sci-fi. So I think I do think that the like really leaned into the genre side of things, speculative fiction books are often kind of overlooked.
3: Well, and there are, I think it's the Nebula Awards, so I don't know, at least sort of in the upper literary echelons, if it's sort of this thing of like, well, we're not necessarily going to consider these books for the National Book Award or for the Booker Prize, because they can all go in their own category. Not that awards are like the pinnacle of what is literary, what is not, but it's just one of the measures that we have. I think that fantasy and science fiction in particular are often seen as entertainment genres. And so something that is speculative that has cultural commentary is maybe more likely to cross the bridge over to being taken more seriously and labeled as maybe literary. um, Like Chang Gang All-Stars this year. Definitely. But I think that that ends up missing... Some of the innate cultural commentary that is in all, when you're building a world, you are obviously commenting in some way on the world because you're making changes or you're pulling pieces. I think that conversation is really interesting to have. But yeah, I do think speculative fiction, I think it's kind of reaching a time where it's having its moment and we're going to see it being considered more literary from from here on out. Um, But I also think there are certain authors that have crossed that bridge a little bit more like N.K. Jemison is considered more of a literary and like serious fantasy author. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see what kind of like writing styles and book styles end up end up making it there. I wonder too, there's so much fantasy YA fantasy that I wonder if that kind of like tended to diminish sort of the like prestige. That, that's a good mm-hmm. point.
2: That's I true. I also wonder if it takes us a while to know which science fiction and fantasy books will stand the test of time. Because now I think like we look at like Octavia Butler and we're like, oh, this is this is classic literature but you know, maybe maybe it's like we have to get to a certain point and then be like, oh, they were very prescient. They knew what was coming. <laughs> and so now we can look back and say this was extremely literary.
1: Yeah, kind of like uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I feel like in addition to YA fantasy, there's been a lot of dystopian and vampire supernatural has just really taken off. And maybe it's just more my awareness that I don't know what, those genres entailed in the 20th century but it is interesting to think about how in a lot of history books that were considered like common or popular are now considered classics and totally. i really wonder like are any of these books like is twilight going to be a classic is it already a classic it's just interesting to think about not only the book itself but like the cultural phenomena
2: yeah absolutely we haven't gone deep into that on the podcast but we have you know touched on that that like when we think about the books that are going to be modern classics we maybe look to the award winners and and that's not necessarily wrong but a lot of what will become classic is what's popular so i i think that those are really interesting questions to ask
3: i can't wait in a classroom 200 years From now for them to be reading (laughs) Twilight and discussing
0: (laughs) I would do that now. I I like put on Twilight all the time just so I can just make commentary about the the movie. So funny. Well,
1: it's been wonderful having you. We have one more question just to kind of wrap up. If you're able to answer it, it's I hate getting this question, so apologize for giving it to you. But what would you say is the best book or your favorite book that you've read Last year. <laughs> oh,
3: Sarah, oh thanks. <laughs> you can go first. I don't think I don't think that we'll pick the same thing.
2: Okay, well, one of my favorites for sure is "The Beasting" by Paul Murray. Loved that book. It is a family saga or a family novel. It's a saga because it is over 600 pages, but it is not like a multi-generational book. It is about a nuclear family of four and the secrets they have kept from each other and how that is leading the family to implode. It is very dark. It is very beautiful. It is very interior. You get to be in all four characters' minds. One of those characters, the entire thing is written with zero punctuation. So it just like fair warning for folks. The audiobook <laughs> was not out here when I read it, but that could be something to help someone who wanted to read this overcome that punctuation barrier for sure. I thought there was such great commentary on um, climate issues, even though it wasn't like a cli-fi book, which is another wing of speculative fiction that I'm very interested in. How about you, Chelsea?
3: Okay. One of my favorites that I have been recommending a lot, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. And Sarah loved this one too. It's so it's, it's so good. good. He's one of those authors that like, definitely he is going to be a classic. But anyway, the book opens in the 1970s and workers are digging for a new development and they find a skeleton. So we know at the beginning, like there's a skeleton buried, but we don't know whose it is. We don't know how it got there. That's kind of like the the prologue to the book. Several decades earlier, um, we get to meet the residents of Chicken Hill, which is a community in Pennsylvania. And it is a rich melting pot kind of community. We have Jewish residents from all over the world. We have African-American residents. We have just many people, mostly immigrants. And the relationships that they have throughout the community are part of this book, sort of this tense experience where one member of the Black community, they have this deaf child and the state is trying to send him to an institution. And so just the way that these people all come around to protect him is really beautiful. And so there's a mystery element to this book, but it's also about family and community and just this really warm book, but also very tense. It's just, it is brilliantly, brilliantly written. And I just keep talking about the author's note because I loved the book, but then I read the author's note and it shot up to be one of my favorite books of the year. So, so good. So I should say the title again. That's The Heaven and Earth
1: Grocery Store by James McBride. Great. Those both sound great. And we will link them in our description for everyone who's interested. Can we turn
3: the question on you, though? I (laughs) want to know what your best books of the year are. Okay.
1: Neha, do you have it handy?
0: (laughs) Well... Personally, I did not have a lot of time to read out of the podcast this year. I got married a couple months ago, so that took over my entire life. Thank you. So I don't know if I can really say that I read a lot of newer books, but if I had to walk away from a couple favorites that we read on the podcast, I think it would be Passing by Nella Larson. That was a new read for me this year, and it was so good. I absolutely loved it. And then the other one would be Palace of Illusions by Tritha Banerjee Divakaruni. It was one of the books we read in our Mahabharata discovery episodes. And it was just a modern retelling of the poem in the perspective of a woman, which was very new to me and just gave us like a whole new perspective of what the, that story meant to us. But yeah, I, I would walk away from those two being a favorite for me. What about you, Shruti? I'm going to cheat
1: and say a short story. But I'll, I'll go Ooh. along with the book. Um, I discovered Claire Keegan this year, and I read Small Things Like These, and I loved it. And then I listened to um, So Late in the Day, which is a short story on audio, and I absolutely loved it. I think she just takes such an everyday occurrence in that story and gets you so deep into the minds of the people that you – both sympathize with them and you kind of despise them and it's just it it was so brilliant i love that one she's incredible Mm -hmm. i want to read all of her
2: all of her catalog now me too sarah and i have not discussed
3: any indian classics on novel pairings yet oh have you been like waiting like "Hmm, maybe they'll do this one (laughs) which one (laughs) would you be like oh i'm really excited to hear that one or to talk about them talk about with them
1: I I have honestly not thought about it I'm so like I like classics to me are so western that I I haven't even that's such a good question but I guess one of the books I really liked in high school was The Guide by R.K. Narayan which I would say is probably a classic in India and it's about this man who at the beginning of the book, he's a, uh, he's become a saint, but then it goes back in time and his experience as a traveling guide, um, and a couple of the people he meets. And that one was, I enjoyed that one and it was made into a really good movie back in the sixties. I also, I just got a collection of Rabindranath Tagore's, um, short stories, essays, poetry that I'm excited to read. I think they're mostly translated, but I think that he, he would be a classic author. Yeah. Yeah. For sure.
3: Okay, well, I can't wait for your season. your season. I'm very excited. And it was so, so fun to talk with you. Thanks for having yeah, us on. Of course. No, it Thank was you so fun. much. This
1: was great. Thank you so much for joining. Anytime. Yeah, yeah <laughs> really.
0: <laughs> that was our bonus episode with guests Sarah and Chelsea from The Novel Pairings. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to their podcast called The Novel Pairings, available on all platforms. You can also follow them on Instagram at The Novel Pairings Pod. For extra content, you can subscribe to their newsletter or join their Patreon. We will have all this information for you linked in the episode description. Next episode is our first season three book review. We will begin our journey to the other worlds with some gothic, dark academia by discussing The Secret History by Donna Tart. See you guys then! Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts and Jiffy and our music is created by our co-team. We love to hear from you. So send us program recommendations or episode commentary. Subscribe to our free newsletter linked in the episode description. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelt.pod
1: or email us at thenovelt.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.